I'll begin with prayer. Heavenly Father, Lord, we do thank you for our day. We thank you for our time together. We pray, Lord, that we would think well upon the book of Revelation and that we, as we look into the new creations and the judgment that you send at the white throne judgment, that we'd always remember that we've been spared from judgment, that we've not been appointed to wrath, but to obtain salvation through Jesus Christ, our Lord. So help us think now clearly on your text of scripture. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I want to welcome everybody here. Um, I, I, most of you in here know Jim Palmer and his wife, Mary Alice, which maybe she was raptured and we all missed it, but uh, she's here somewhere. <laughs> but She's somewhere. But for those of you that don't know Jim, I don't think anybody in here doesn't know you, Jim, but he's back from Racine. He was at the wedding last night of Brian Beer's daughter got married, and that was a fabulous time. And So anyway, um, just good to see Jim Palmer with us again here today and his wife, Mary Alice. So make sure you say hi to them. So we're going to continue on. We left off last time on this slide where we were talking about the eternal lake of fire. And we had ended this section in verse 15 where, remember, this is the white throne judgment. And the big claim that I had made last time was that this is a judgment that is exclusive to unbelievers. Now, one of the reasons why I'm kind of hammering that point is because amillennialists will claim that at the white throne judgment, you have both believers and unbelievers. And one of the themes that I've tried to drive home throughout our studies of the book of Revelation is that in America today, the book is much neglected because people really, I think, despair of having a proper interpretation. And so because people say, well, the premillennialists say this, the postmillennialists say that, and the amillennialists say that, no one can really know, so let's just give up. What I'm trying to show you is that the answers in book, the book of Revelation are fairly clear. So remember the logic here in Revelation 20, verse 6, all those who had taken part of the first resurrection didn't take part over the, in the second death. Well, last week we saw that the second death is the lake of fire. So the logic is if you're a believer, you're a part of the first resurrection, and therefore you're not going to hell. So obviously, everyone who is part of the second death that we see at the white throne judgment must therefore be an unbeliever. So again, the amillennialist really doesn't have a leg to stand on. Okay, again, we can be confident that yes, the book of Revelation is clear. One theologian put it this way, he said the big battle in the book of Revelation is not in its interpretation, but in believing simply what it says. It is a pretty straightforward book. Okay, so with that, I want to turn to this idea, and I want to leave you with three things before we move into the next section. Hell is real, hell is eternal, and God runs hell. Let me explain the first one. Hell is real. This has become under attack as of late. Um, Well, it's always been under attack. But by the postmodern generation, we see many teachers like Rob Bell or Brian McLaren leading children and kids and adults alike astray, saying there is no hell. In fact, let me quote from Brian McLaren. This is someone that Bob has taken to task in some of his writings. I had the opportunity to refute some of his teachings years ago. Brian McLaren of the postmodern emerging church movement was asked in an interview, does hell exist? He says this, quote, Obviously the word hell exists, but it has a history, some of which comes from Plato, the Greek idea of Hades, part of which comes from Zoroastrianism and some liberal Jews in the intertestamental period embraced the Pharisees. Okay, so then this interviewer says, but what did Jesus teach? Well, McLaren continues. He says, he didn't teach 
what evangelical Christians teach about hell. He taught that if you're rich, you're going to hell. But then it says, it says long silence in the transcript. Now, what's very interesting is, let me just throw this out there. Why do you think Brian McLaren, first of all, he doesn't want to acknowledge that there is a hell. You can see he dances around the question. But when he's finally pressed on it, it's the rich that go to hell. Now, of course, we can immediately think of counterexamples in the Bible. Um, I was thinking of Lydia, who was wealthy, in Acts 16. She was a very wealthy woman, and she was a believer, and she's been spared the wrath of God. So what is he getting that idea that the rich go to hell? Well, he's using probably, I would think, Luke 16, the parable of the rich man and Lazarus. But remember, first of all, we said that the rich man wakes up in Hades, technically not Gehenna. But the big problem is what he's doing is he's really, I think, taking his Marxism and he's placing it upon the text of Scripture. So if you're wealthy, you're bad because you're the have, and everyone who is poor is the have-not. All right, so what's interesting is, remember, the emerging church comes ultimately from Hegel. Bob has written about this in his book. I always say that there are three E's that govern the emerging church. It's their eschatology, it's their epistemology, and it's something called emergence theory. Well, the root cause of it all is really Hegel. Well, one of the students of Hegel was Karl Marx. And so what the emerging church movement did in America is it gave left Marxists a religion that they could have apart from their politics, but they're really one and the same. Okay, so to him, it's only the rich that go to hell. They're not on board with taking their money and giving it all away. That would be kind of the idea that he has. But what we want to show is that hell is real. Jesus taught about it. Matthew 5.22, Jesus said, But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother shall be guilty before the court. And whoever says to his brother, you good for nothing, shall be guilty before the Supreme Court. And whoever says, you fool, literally rakah, shall be guilty enough to go into fiery hell. Now, the reason I put fiery hell is I want you to see the connection between the lake of fire that we just read about in Revelation 20 at the white throne judgment and hear the term for hell, Gehenna, the term that Jesus often uses to refer to this final destination of all unbelievers. So what this shows us then is Jesus himself taught the doctrine of hell. And so that's why even the interview of Brian McLaren said, well, you may not like it or you may think Plato taught it, but didn't Jesus teach the doctrine? Well, certainly he did. Certainly Jesus taught that indeed it is real. Here, Luke 12, 25, Jesus here is talking about the proper one to fear. He says, but I will warn you whom to fear. Fear the one who, after he is killed, has the authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. At the end of the day, every person is going to serve the one they fear. That's why we see in Proverbs, in the opening chapter, remember the writer of Proverbs says, the beginning of knowledge is what? The fear of Yahweh. So why? Because you end up serving the one that you fear. If you fear man and what they can do to you, you'll end up serving them. But if you fear God, you'll serve him on his terms. You'll come to him by faith in Christ. That's the idea. So hell is real. Now, let me keep moving. We also see that hell is eternal. Some have claimed that this is only temporary, that God would certainly never make this type of punishment eternal. But we see the opposite in Scripture. It is, in fact, eternal. Matthew 18, 8. 
Jesus again says, if your hand or your foot causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it from you. It is better for you to enter life crippled or lame than to have two hands or two feet and be cast into the eternal fire. Now, notice the term there, eternal, that adjective, ionios, means unto the ages, without end. There's no end of its duration. That's what the term means. Now, I technically like the translation everlasting. Now, I don't mean to be too persnickety, but let me explain why. Technically, eternal means it never had a beginning, and it'll never have an end. Okay, so technically, the only thing that is eternal is God. Because he never had a beginning. He's always existed. So, yes, hell is everlasting. There will be no end to it. But it has a beginning. Are you with me? So I like the term everlasting. In fact, I like that with everlasting life. Because you and I have life. It's everlasting. But we came into existence at a point in time. Okay, so just a technicality. But it's everlasting. It goes on and on. It will never end. Uh, 2 Thessalonians 1.9 You see, Paul say this. He says, these will pay the penalty. It's those who reject the gospel, by the way. But they'll pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. Now, notice again you have the term eternal. Here the term destruction, aletheros, doesn't mean that something is annihilated. It simply means that it is under ruin. So think of your car. I like to use that example. If your car is destroyed In a car crash, it doesn't mean that it ceases to exist. It simply is probably not operable, (laughs) right? It's less than optimal. You used to be able to sit in it and have a cold drink and drive to work, and now it's nothing more than a rusty hunk of junk, right? It's been destroyed. But it doesn't mean it ceases to exist. I say that because some annihilationists will take this passage and say, aha, destruction, that means they no longer exist. Therefore, God doesn't torment people forever. Well, that's not true. That's not how the term is understood. That's not how you and I use the term. We don't say something was destroyed. It means it ceases to exist. Okay. So now I want to go on to the last fact, and that is God runs hell. In the culture, the popular conception is that Satan has his little pitchfork out, and he's down there poking and jabbing people and having a big old time in hell, and he runs it. But that's not the case. Remember, when you and I come to Jesus Christ by faith, we're being spared from the wrath of God. It's God who runs hell. And we see that in many passages. I'll just give you a representation. Matthew 10, 28. Jesus said, Do not fear again those who kill the body but are unable to kill the soul, but rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. Notice in the red there the term able. It comes from our term dunamis. Um, You can hear the root for dynamite. It has to do with power. He literally has the power to destroy both body and soul in hell. So, yes, Eric. Yeah, um, the word destroy there. Yeah. I, I'm thinking back to your point on the earlier slide about annihilation. And uh, is that Greek? And I'm not a, I don't know Greek, obviously. But yeah. the word destroy there, is that related to the destruction, the, 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 the word, the Greek word destruction, which means under ruin then? It would be um, alethros, and there's another one, apolumi which is to destroy, Um, they're really synonymous. They'll use them interchangeably. It never means there's no doctrine in um, any of the word groups for destruction or destroy that really have to do with something ceasing to exist. So in other words, when we say 
but rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. It's the ruination of exactly. body and soul in hell. You will suffer. People n- need to know that they will suffer. Well said. Yeah, good Everlasting suffer, right? Okay. Absolutely. That's right. So this is something that goes on eternally. And uh, my point here is when you look at that term able, it's God who is able. It's God who is powerful. And obviously he's the one who is pouring this wrath out. And you're absolutely right. This is going to go on to eternity. They're never going to be annihilated and get off the hook, so to speak. Yeah, good, good clarification, Eric. Thank you. Um, let me just give you one more represent, representative passage. Romans 5, 9, this is something that we had studied. Here we're promised that we are going to escape this wrath. Paul says, much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. So the reason I like that phrase, the wrath of God, it's a genitive of source. Where is the source of wrath? Well, it's God. Okay, so we're being saved from his wrath. It's not Satan's wrath. It's not man's wrath. We're being saved through the blood of Christ, the wrath of God. It's his wrath that will be poured out at the white throne judgment. The lake of fire is his wrath. He runs it. So at the end of the day, remember, when you and I come to Christ, yes, we're going to be spared from our enemies. We're going to be spared from the wiles of the devil and our spiritual adversaries in the heavenly realm but the most important thing is that we're spared from the wrath of god why because in our sinful state we were enemies but through jesus christ we have peace with god no longer enemies but even considered friends not equals but remember jesus says he considers us even friends so those are the last things i wanted to leave you with with this idea of hell and the white throne judgment but now i want to turn our attention to this glorious new creation that God is going to bring for his people. And I want to begin by mentioning why it is that God is going to bring forth a new creation. And this has always been a promise all the way back to the prophets. We'll look at some passages. Remember, the old creation, when sin entered into the world, was subject to decay. In fact, let me read that from Romans chapter 8. I'll read verses 18 through 21. And you can turn there if you like, but many of you will remember this. You probably studied this not long ago in our study. Romans 18, or excuse me, Romans 8, verse 18 through 21. Paul said this, he says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the anxious longing of the creation waits eagerly for the revealing of the sons of God. Now, verse 20 says, For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself also will be set free from its slavery to corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. Does everyone hear that term corruption? The universe, because of sin, was subjected by God to corruption. The term there, phthora, it's kind of a tongue twister. It's a P-H with a T-H added to it. And so you have to go phthora. Phthora. It's really a hard one. Um, When I started learning Greek, I always had a hard time with those. I felt like I was going to end up spitting on the floor. I just had a hard time. But it means decay. And so what's so neat is here we see that God, because of sin, had subjected the universe to decay. And this is exactly what we see, for example, in the second law of thermodynamics. The law of entropy. Bob had studied that in engineering. Many of you remember that from your science classes that the law of entropy says that all 
energy in a closed system is going from a higher organized state to a lesser organized state. That's a way of saying it. But the, the simple way of saying it is that all energy is in a form of decay. So one day, you're always going to have the same amount of matter. That's the first law. But the second law says it becomes more and more unusable. So one day, all the, the sun and the stars and everything that we see will burn out. Well, this is one of the proofs for the existence of God. Because at the end of the day, something has to be eternal. If there was ever a time that there was nothing, there'd be nothing now. Out of nothing, nothing comes. So if something has to be eternal for there to be anything now, and we know it can't be the universe, how can you have an infinite span of a universe with a finite supply of usable energy? It doesn't work. So that's one of the reasons we know there has to be an eternal God. But it also should be comforting for all of us to see that when we look at the universe as it is, in decay, not perfect, we see all the problems with the weather, we see all of the pain and sorrow that people go through, we realize the Bible is telling us it's because of sin that everything is in decay. And this corresponds even not to a theory of physics, but the second law of thermodynamics. So even science validates and backs up what the scriptures are saying on that point. So my point in saying all this is this is why we need a new creation. God is promising us here in Revelation 21 that he is going to overcome the former creation that was tainted and given over to decay because of sin. And so this is a beautiful, beautiful picture that we're going to be reading about here in the new creation. So let me begin reading here in Revelation 21.1. Now, is anybody, uh, Bob, did you have some thoughts you wanted to share or anything? I saw you would. Well, I, I wanted to mention that that's a key apologetic point. Yeah, yeah. And I was talking to uh, someone who was very recently educated, very brilliant, was not yet a Christian. Right. And he was saying that the people he knows that understand this because they know yeah. science, they become almost nihilist. They, it's, it's depressing. It's, mm. They know that what you're saying is true. Yeah. But they don't know what to do with it. And so some of the most brilliant people are also the most troubled. Wow. Uh, unless they come to Christ and believe that there will be a resurrection and a new yeah. creation, all you see is meaninglessness and hopelessness Yeah. because you can't deny what you're saying. Right. right. And I don't know that anybody's claiming at this point that the universe came out of nothing. Yeah. But they also know that the universe is finite. Right. So it leads to a meaningless, hopeless view of life Yeah. without any idea, well, what do I do there? Well said. And so it, it's, we need to put out these things. That's why I, I really don't like this emergent and yeah. philosophical versions of Christianity. Right. Because... In a sense, that's what happened in, with German philosophy. Kant and his pure reason, yeah. it led to such a bleak outlook yeah. Yeah, of that they went to idealism and thought, well, let's just imagine the world the way we want it to. Right. So you were yeah. mentioning McLaren. I was rereading yeah. some of the material that I wrote about that in my book. Right. They're imagining, in fact, he has a statement, imagine... The end of entropy. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Uh, we're th hoping for a world where that goes away. 
So they're, they don't have any ground. They don't have any rational, objective ground. Right. And so they go to this despair. You can't really know anything. Yeah. And then since you can't really know anything, why don't we imagine a world that's evolving toward godhood Yeah. and... God is pulling everything into himself as his right exactly panentheism yeah. yeah so uh, dear ones the, the issue is there's no reason to be, not believe the Bible people have been trying to pull it apart and debunk it for centuries yeah they can't do it right because it is true yeah so why not believe the Bible rather than just go to an imaginary eschatology where everything's evolving into something better when all the evidence says no, it's devolving right. and dying of heat death. <laughs> right, amen. Yeah, I'm sorry. Thank you, Bob. Um, yeah, Lonnie. Yeah, I just wanted to say a lot of these evolutionists, they believe that once there's an end to whatever, this evolution, there's a complete entropy or whatever you want yeah, to call like it. Yeah, it's like a rebound theory. Oh, like, you've heard of that? Yeah, yeah it's, it's supposed to start over again. Yeah. Right. Uh, yeah. It's uh, another cycle. What's interesting about that, Lonnie, let me just stop you right there. I'm sorry, continue after me. Wasn't it interesting that science is supposed to be based on observation? Yeah. So the way the universe as it is observed supports our doctrine that, yes, everything is trending towards decay. So they have to make up something. And you ask them, where do you observe this idea that this rebound theory will occur? Well, they certainly can observe it because it's not occurring. So it's merely a theory. And what I would simply say to that is, look, that's not science. That's faith. Yeah. So why do they claim that? Why are you? They say to us, why do you claim to believe these things on faith? Well, they have faith as well. And uh, our faith is based on evidence according to what has been revealed. But yeah, very good point. By the way, anybody ever read Robert Jastrow? He was a famous uh, physicist. I, I believe he was an astronomer was his main gig but he writes, you can see this in the Baker Encyclopedia, he has a book out there, it's called God and the Astronomers, I believe. I'm trying to remember um, the name of his book. But what's interesting is there's a quote in it where he says, um, he comes to the conclusion, just as we have here, that without the universe being eternal, there must be a God. And so he has this statement, and remember this is an agnostic, his whole worldview is enforced and reinforced by people who are atheists, And he writes in his book, he says, here you're going to have one day, he fears, a group of scientists who are going to scale the mountain, and when they finally crawl across the final crevice of ignorance, they come across a band of theologians who have been sitting there for ages. And uh, I love that quote because he's starting to realize, wait a minute, science is starting to say that this universe can't be eternal Therefore, there has to be, I mean, he starts to realize the implications of it. Now, one thing that Bob mentioned in pantheism, pantheism, remember, is the fact that everything is in God, or panentheism is that God is in all things. Here's the problem with pantheism. Pantheism falls on the same sword, in my opinion, that really atheism does, and here's why. If God is the universe, okay, well then, and I know they tried to make some distinction, but there's really... If you try to distinguish between God and the universe and pantheism, you really have a hard time doing it because everything is God. So if everything is God and the universe, therefore, is God, but the universe isn't eternal, your God isn't eternal. 
And so now again, you don't have any ground for being because not, out of nothing, nothing comes. Do you realize that self-creation is an absurdity because it violates the law of non-contradiction? How can something not exist then exist at the same time to put itself into existence? So the quandary that the atheist is really in is by believing in atheism, they either have to violate a law of science, the second law of thermodynamics, or they have to violate the law of non-contradiction in logic. So they're either absurd because they believe that nothing can do something, or they have to violate the law of science saying that the universe is eternal. And so that's the quandary they are in. Yeah, Bob. Yeah, I really pointed out having, when I wrote that book, I, I did interact directly with a lot of these guys. Yeah. And after the book, I went to their conference. And so I think I got a pretty good idea about what makes them tick. Yeah. And they try to be open people. I, yeah. Tony Jones was always nice to me. And yep. he answer any question I asked. And some of the others. What we need to be concerned about as Christians is that we don't give people excuses to become that way. Yeah. Most of these people who became emergent yeah. were disgusted with the evangelical church they saw. Yeah. They saw bad motives, shallowness, hypocrisy. Yeah. Um, if you see the health and wealth gospel or the seeker movement or Robert Schuller or they see all of this stuff going on mm-hmm. and they see it as, as being non-authentic. Yeah. And so then they reject the whole thing because the people who claim to believe the Bible really don't. Right. Or at least don't live up to it. And so they, they thought, let's just do this. Yeah. Now, our task is to show them the biblical Christianity based on God's grace is livable Mm. and God does change people and it's possible to go to church without being a hypocrite not that you're perfected but we're not claiming that we're claiming and I'll preach on this next week we're claiming that God said that we're his workmanship yeah amen and we don't have to be motivated by money and we don't have to be shallow and we and actually I'm very motivated that we give an intellectual adequate scholarly approach so the young people are not turned off yeah man because they tend to want to find somebody that has real answers and that will listen to their questions and concerns and so we say well just be religious because we said you should or don't embarrass us you know or or whatever it is that's not giving an adequate answer that's why when i was a new christian I really like Francis Schaeffer. Yeah. Uh, I don't agree with his eschatology. Yeah. But he wanted to give real answers to people yeah. who were looking for them. Right, right. And yeah. I think we should never give up on it, and we should do it. Amen. And I appreciate you doing that, Eric. Thank oh, you. Well, likewise, Bob. Um, I remember when one of your books you wrote, the seeker-sensitive movement really opened us up to the emerging church movement. And the reason being is because it was so shallow. They gave no evidence and it was simply believe it because we believe it. Well, that's not sufficient. There's evidence for what we believe. So, um, yeah, we have to continue to contend for the faith once we're all handed down to the saints. That's the task of the church. And in doing so, we have the evidence on our side. That's the, the beautiful thing. Now, let me read this Revelation 21.1. 1. 
John says this. He says, then I saw. Now, remember, when he uses that phrase, you're coming to a new vision. So he says, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth passed away, and there is no longer any sea. Now, this reference to the new heaven and new earth, this was promised back in the Old Testament. In fact, the Old Testament prophets like Isaiah, they look forward to this day where the creation that was marred by sin would be restored. In fact, here is probably an allusion back to Isaiah 65, 17, where Isaiah, 700 years prior to Christ's coming, was really saying the same thing. He said, For behold, God says, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former things will not be remembered anymore. So here we see in Isaiah 65, the whole promise of this new creation is in the context of a passage where it talks about the former things and the curses that came upon Israel because of their sin and disobedience. Well, in Isaiah 65, verses 13 through 25, where you see verse 17 in the midst of, it's a whole section that promises an eternal bliss where the old creation and the old age dominated by sin and death is going to be gotten rid of. And so God is going to do this new thing. He's going to have a new heavens, a new earth. He's going to have his people live in a creation that's no longer marred by sin. Wow, what a great promise that is. And uh, so anyway, so that I think is very exciting. Now, here's one thing I want to focus on for a moment. Notice at the end of verse 1, notice it says, and there is no longer any sea. Now, for you, if you may be a sea-loving person or you love your boat or your ship or you love going, this may be somewhat troubling, but let me try to unpack the question as to why it is John would focus on this aspect of the new creation that there's no more sea. But before I do that, there's one implication that I want you to understand behind this phrase. This phrase, that there is no more sea, disproves amillennialism. Okay, and I keep doing this because I want you to be so confident that when you go out after this class in the book of Revelation, you'll say, I know premillennialism is true. I know we can interpret the book of Revelation. Now, let me explain why this refutes amillennialism. Remember, amillennialism means there's no millennium. So for the amillennialists, they have to go from the age where we're living in now, what we refer to as the church age, and they have to go from that to the eternal states the new heavens, the new earth, and new Jerusalem. However, there are passages in the Bible that refer to a time in which the Dead Sea is going to be made alive. This is in Ezekiel 47. And when we read about this Dead Sea coming alive, there's also the Mediterranean Sea in context in this this Ezekiel passage, and it's predicting a time where Messiah is reigning in Jerusalem where the sea will still exist... But the Dead Sea is going to bring forth life. Now, here's the problem. That isn't occurring now during the church age. And in the eternal states, it cannot occur. Why? Because there's no sea. So the amillennialist is without a time period in which this could occur, namely the millennial kingdom. Are you with me? So let me have you turn your attention towards this passage that alludes to this. And there's quite a bit of reading, but we'll, we'll get through it here. Ezekiel 47, if you would turn your Bibles, uh, I'll wait. Ezekiel 47, verses 8 through 10. I just want us to all be on the same page here. So please turn your Bibles, if you have one, to Ezekiel 47, verses 8 through 10. This is a great promise. Now, remember, as you're turning there, in the last chapters... 
of Ezekiel. Dina had taught us uh, through those passages. And he talked about the temple that the Messiah was going to be reigning from. And that's exactly the scene that we see. Messiah is reigning from the temple. There's living waters that are symbolic, but they're also real. And they're proceeding from Jerusalem, and they give life. And it's these rivers, then, that are going to bring life even to the Dead Sea. Okay, so we'll read about that here. Ezekiel 47, 8 through 10, it says, Then he said to me, These waters go out toward the eastern region and go down into the Arabah. Now, what's the Arabah? Well, it's this southern rift, this rift valley, that is south of the Sea of Galilee. And so there's many parts to it, but part of it would be the Dead Sea. And you'll see that becomes very evident here. So it says, and they go toward the sea. That would be in the Arabah. That would be the Dead Sea. Being made to flow into the sea. And notice it says in verse 8, and the waters of the sea become fresh. It will come about that every living creature which swarms in every place where the river goes will live. And there will be very many fish for these waters go there and the others become fresh. So everything will live where the river goes. And it will come about that fishermen will stand beside it from En Gedi. Now, stop there. How many have been to Israel and saw En Gedi? En Gedi, of course, is that great oasis spring. It's 600 feet above in elevation, the Dead Sea, but it's right next to it on the, uh, it'd be on the western side. So many of you have seen that. And then notice it goes all the way to Engelium which would be the east side of the Dead Sea. So the, the point is, the writer is saying the whole Dead Sea, not just a part of it, but from east to west, the entirety of it is going to be made fresh. And it says there will be a place for the spreading of nets. Their fish will be according to their kinds, like the fish of the Great Sea, that's the Mediterranean, very many. So dear ones, realize when Messiah is reigning on his, in his temple, on his throne, living waters are going to proceed... And the Dead Sea is going to bring forth so many fish, it's going to be like the Mediterranean now. Well, does the Messiah reign on his throne from Jerusalem during the church age? No. But if the amillennialist says, well, this must be referring to the eternal states, er, why? Because in Revelation 21.1, there's no more sea. So the amillennialist has no time period in which to put what happens here in. That's the problem. All right, so I hope that makes sense. Now, someone might say, and I thought of this, I thought of, okay, how would you get around it? Well, they might claim, well, the Dead Sea isn't really a sea, it's more of a lake. The problem with that is keep going to Ezekiel 47.15. Ezekiel 47.15, what God does is he gives the boundaries of what Israel will be like during this time where Messiah is reigning. Notice in verse 15 of Ezekiel 47, it says, this will be the boundary of the land on the north side from the Great Sea. So notice the Great Sea is the Mediterranean. I'll just stop there. The point is it still exists. Okay, so the Great Sea exists at this time. Well, it doesn't in Revelation 21.1 in the new heavens, the new earth, and new Jerusalem. So my point is it won't do for the amillennialists to say, well, the Dead Sea really isn't the sea as we understand it. It's more of a lake. Well, the Mediterranean still exists then when this is all occurring. So again, their objection wouldn't hold. So I think this is absolute proof that amillennialists, again, have no leg to stand on. Okay, now any questions on that? Good. Okay, now let's keep moving. Let's, though, get to the question, why this issue of no more sea? I didn't know how else to say it other than what's with no sea? I like the sea. I like water. What 
in the world is going on. Why is that not part of the new creation? Well, let me cite a scholar. His name is Sweet. He says it this way. Why there's no more sea in the new creation. He says, quote, In the mind of the writer, that's John, it is associated with ideas which are at variance with the character of the new creation. Okay, let's stop there. Notice the scholar is very careful to say that the sea is not inherently sinful. Okay, so nowhere in Scripture do we see the sea as being inherently sinful. That's not the issue. But the sea represents something that is at variance, that is at odds, or is less than the ideal. Now, let me show you Genesis 1-2, and I want to talk about what Genesis 1-2 doesn't say and then tell you what I think it does say. Let me read it to you. A lot of scholars who point to why there's no sea will start here. Notice here in Genesis 1-2, it says, The earth was formless and void. Now, let me stop there. Remember the terms formless and void? It's tohu and bohu. I call them the great twins of Genesis 1. Tohu and bohu, it's formless and void. Okay, now formless would be the idea that it's like a desert, it's like a wasteland. Now some versions you see though, it'll say it was chaos. Okay, and I know many people like to focus on that aspect of this was chaos that was going on. Well, notice it also says that darkness was over the surface of the deep. So these are the waters now, and the Spirit of God was moving over the surface of the waters. Well, notice this phrase, the Spirit of God is moving over the surface of the waters, What some scholars will do is they'll look at this and they'll say, look, the initial creation was something that was chaos, tohu. The earth was formless and void. And you have God's spirit moving over the waters, and the waters are being depicted as something that must be overcome. Okay? So, for example, they would go on into Genesis 9, and they would say, look, you have the flood waters that destroy the whole world, but God overcomes the flood waters through taking Noah out of them through the ark. And in some sense, this is what baptism symbolizes, that God is able to overcome, bring us from death to life. We're dead with Christ, we're alive to the new. So in Genesis 1-2, many people say this is a picture of God overcoming the sea, overcoming the chaos, which is at the beginning. And so in some sense, then the sea represents something that God must overcome. But let me, as I say that, let me give you two caveats. First of all, God doesn't create something out of something that pre-exists. In other words, I don't want you to come away from Genesis 1-2 thinking, well, there was this initial part that existed, the sea, and this chaos, and God took that and he made something good. No, he creates all things ex nihilo out of nothing. So I'm saying that because whatever God creates, it's out of nothing, and therefore he's on the hook for the whole thing. Okay? So it's not fair to say, well, the sea was evil, and therefore this formless and void, the tohu and bohu earth was evil, and it preexisted and God overcame it. No, God made it. And so what you and I have to understand is that God didn't make something evil. In fact, turn your Bibles to Isaiah 45, 18. Isaiah comments on this very passage, Isaiah 45, 18. Isaiah 45, 18, we'll see that when God created all things ex nihilo out of nothing, he didn't do so uh, in the sense that he made something evil. And that's what we want to see here. Isaiah 45, 18, it says, For thus says Yahweh, who created the heavens, he is the God who formed the earth and made it, 
He established it and did not create it a waste place, but formed it to be inhabited. I am Yahweh, and there is no one else. Now, does everyone see there where it says he did not create it a waste place? Isaiah 45, 18. Does everyone see that? It might say something different in your Bible, but that's tohu. It's the same term that's used here in Genesis 1-2 for formless. Okay, so Isaiah is saying, look, he didn't create it with the intention of it being chaos or a desert. Okay, so what we have to understand then is Genesis 1-2 is simply depicting the first stage of God's creation. So in the first three days, you have a forming. The last three days, days 4, 5, and 6 of the creation, you have a filling. In fact, the great scholar of the book of Genesis, Victor Hamilton, said it this way. He said, we have already voiced our reasons for not interpreting Tohu and Bohu as a kind of early Sheol or Hades against which God's wrath has been loosed. Instead, he says, we see it here as a reference to the situation prior to the specific creation, a situation of formlessness, but over which, now here's the key phrase, over which God's spirit superintends. Okay, so the point is, don't think that God has made something suspect or something deficient. He's in the process of overcoming and superintending this process. So the only reason I'm showing you this passage, though, is I want you to see that the sea from the very beginning is something that God is overcoming, that God is one in the process of overcoming formlessness and that which is chaotic. That's why the Spirit's of, of God, hover over it. I'm sorry, go ahead, Jen. This thought just came to me when yeah. I read um, Isaiah um, 45, 18. I think we can stop um, space exploration looking for life on other planets because according to this, <laughs> um, the Lord created the heavens. He is the God who formed the earth and yeah. made it. He established it and did not create it a waste place, but formed it to be inhabited. It doesn't say... He put life on Mars or Saturn. I think we can rest assured that Earth is the only place that is inhabited by life. (laughs) Yeah, well said. Now, very well said. Now, this would be an argument from silence because we could say, well, just because he doesn't mention it doesn't mean... He he doesn't mention the resurrection here either, but the resurrection occurred. So my whole point is saying, I think you're right. I don't think there is life on other planets. But yeah, that would be probably the comeback. But you're absolutely right. I think that this Earth was intentionally created specifically for those who are made in the image of God. And uh, to say that there's life outside, that really comes from a worldview that is, I, I think, trying to find life forms because it believes either that nothing can do something or that there is some other um, explanation of the universe other than the eternal God. So absolutely well said, Jen. Yeah, very good. So the big point is God creates with the intention of getting giving order, but the sea for the Jews often represents disorder. Okay, and so I want you to realize that there are three things that the sea represents throughout the Bible, and you can see this in the Bible itself. Three forms of disorder, excuse me, disorder. The first is human rebellion, the second is the abyss, and the third is the demonic. The last two are kind of associated. Okay. Now, the first one, I want you to see how sometimes the sea is representative of human rebellion itself. We see that in Isaiah 57.10, where it says, But the wicked are like the tossing sea, for it cannot be quiet, and its waters toss up refuse and mud. 
So what are the wicked likened to? They're wicked, they're likened, excuse me, they're likened to the tossing of the sea. And so the sea is often depicted as a place where unregenerate humanity rebels against God. We see this in the, the book of Daniel. We also see that it's a place of the demonic. In fact, here it represents the abyss, Isaiah 27.1. Now, by the way, Isaiah 27, that's part of what we call the little apocalypse in Isaiah, where we're seeing eschatology. This is about the future day of the Lord. It says, in that day, Yahweh will punish Leviathan, the fleeing serpent. Stop there. Who's this fleeing serpent? I think it's a reference to Satan. We see the same imagery used in the garden, also in Revelation, referring to Satan. So this is the day that the Lord is going to punish Satan. It says, with his fierce and great and mighty sword, even Leviathan, the twisted serpent, and notice the phrase, he will kill the dragon who lives in the sea. So the sea again represents the abyss. It's this chaos that God overcomes. It's the abyss. It's that which is opposed to God. And so I think that that's one of the imageries behind the sea. Let me give you another example. Let me show you where the demonic is associated with the sea. Here in Matthew chapter 8, this is where Jesus is casting out demons. He casts them out of this demoniac. And where does he send them? Into swine, which are unclean. And then they go into the sea, which represents the abyss. So he casts them out into something unclean, cast them from there into something that's even more unclean in the Jews' mind, the abyss itself. Matthew 8, 31 through 32, the demons began to entreat him, saying, if you are going to cast us out, send us into the herd of swine. Now here's Jesus, verse 32. It says, and he said to them, go. And they came out and went into the swine, and the whole herd rushed down the steep bank into the sea and perished in the waters. Okay, so notice this idea of the demoniac. He's cleansed, he's freed. The demons are thrown into something unclean. Then they go back, as it were, to where they came from. The imagery of the sea, they went into the abyss. So you see this over and over. Now, as Americans, we don't have this worldview where the sea represents this, but to the Jews, they certainly did. And as John was writing the book of Revelation, where was he? He was in the island of Patmos, separated by the sea from everyone he loved. He was separated from the church, by and large, from family, from friends. So because you and I can go out and crank up our Evinrood and go jump on a lake and overcome the sea, it wasn't so in the ancient days. It was a very frightening thing. And to be fighting the sea, do you remember how the disciples had to fight it? They were fighting it on the this little lake, it's, I don't mean it's a little lake, the Sea of Galilee, but compared to the ocean, and that they were almost overcome many times. But who would come to their rescue during Jesus' earthly ministry? Jesus did. And so they asked the question, well, what manner of man is this that even the winds and the seas obey him? And see, because Jesus demonstrates power over the winds and the sea, it demonstrates also de facto that he has power over chaos, he has power over the demonic, he has all power because in Job 9.8, the question is, who alone stretches out the heavens and treads down the waves of the sea? And the answer is Yahweh alone. So when Jesus is calming the sea, who is he? He's the Yahweh of Job 9.8. 
He's the one who treads down the waves of the sea. And that's why, do you remember, as fearful as the disciples were when they saw the storm come, when Jesus calms the sea, it says they were very afraid. Why? Because they realized it was God in their presence, the God who can overcome even the sea. Wow. I mean, isn't that powerful? So here it's going to be overcome again in the new creation. Yes, Eric. I'm sorry, uh, Ed. Jesus says, I will make you fishers of men coming out of the the sea of humanity. Very good. That's a very good read. You know, Ed, you're not, I, I think that's a fair reading because oftentimes, especially in Daniel, we see it in Daniel 7, uh, you see this idea of the sea representing unregenerate humanity. And absolutely, um, I think that's a fair representation, that to be fishers of men is to be pulling sea, the fish out of the sea of humanity. Absolutely, that's a fair reading, yeah. Yeah, I just uh, actually, as a, we live in Minnesota, you know, and yeah. I grew up around boats uh, out on the lake. We spent a lot of time. But I went out to uh, the West Coast, and an uncle of mine had a commercial, just a small fishing boat, commercial salmon. We went out fishing, and the weather was fine, and then it got windy. And I have, I don't think, speaking for myself, I did not have an appreciation. When you're sitting in a boat, and you can look, and 30 feet above your head is the next wave coming. In other words, we had to get off. But, in other words, it's terrifying. Yeah. We don't realize that if you've only been on a lake and never out on the ocean, it's terrifying, and it can, it can just come up. These kind of storms can come up so quickly. Yeah. So it, it really puts it into perspective if you're ever out on the ocean when it's really bad like that. You're right. Well said. It's a very formidable thing. And it's always been throughout all of humanity's history something that had to be overcome, something that separated, something that could kill And uh, yet in the new creation, it's no longer going to separate. It's no longer going to have those connotations. So I think that's all behind it. Now, let me play on this, too, a little bit more. Let me give you another verse that would allude to this idea of the sea representing the demonic in the abyss. Revelation 13, 1, it says, And the dragon stood, this is against Satan, on the sand of the seashore. Then I saw a beast, now here's the Antichrist, coming up out of the sea, having ten horns and seven heads, And on his horns were ten diadems, and on his heads were blasphemous names. So notice, where does this Antichrist come from? Well, he comes from the sea. Why? Because all of the connotations that the Jews had of the sea. Now, what is the sea? Some claim that in Revelation 13.1, the sea represents unregenerate humanity. And that's not a bad reading, because oftentimes, like in Daniel, you see the sea represents unregenerate humanity. The, um, the goyim, the nations, the Gentiles are likened to the sea. But here, I think, clearly John is referring to the sea as the abyss. Now, why? Well, turn earlier, if you will, to your Bibles to Revelation eleven seven. I want you to see Revelation 13, 1 in context, where you'll see the sea <laughs> certainly referring to the abyss. Revelation eleven seven. Now, in Revelation eleven seven, remember those are the two witnesses that God has, much like Moses and Elijah, and they're preaching repentance, but they're being opposed by the beast. And notice what it says about the beast. Revelation eleven seven it says, when they, that would be the two witnesses, have finished their testimony, the beast that comes up out of the abyss will make war with them and overcome them and kill them. So, aha. In Revelation 11:7, where does the beast come up out of? The abyss. 
And where does he come up out of in Revelation 13:1? The sea. Ergo, I think the sea is synonymous with what? The abyss. So we start to see then why it is that John would say that there was going to be no more sea. It's not going to be part of this new creation as much as we may like it. But now, when we start seeing the description of the new Jerusalem, the new heavens, new earth, you're not going to miss it. We're going to have a new Jerusalem that is going to be so beautiful. Do you realize the city cubed, as we look at the dimensions, is going to be the size of the United States? A city, but it's cubed, so its length, its height, and its width are like 1,500 miles. It's going to be amazing. And that's the new Jerusalem that's going to come down. We're going to come to that next. But I hope this helps us understand then why John might say there was no more sea. It certainly represented that which was at variance with what God is going to do in new creation. Now, one thing we see here, I'm going to give you a quote here from uh, Robert Thomas. He's one of the best scholars in the book of Revelation. If you ever want a good commentary on Revelation to study yourself, Robert Thomas, I think, is the best. He has a two-part volume. I think he does chapters 1 through 7 in his first volume, and then he does chapters 8 through 22. But it's put out by Moody Press. Um, He was a scholar into his 90s. He was still teaching at age 95 and a very reputable man. A master seminary, I think, is where he ended up. But here is Thomas. He says this about the sea. He says, It is not that the sea is evil in and of itself, but that its aspect is one of hostility toward mankind. For instance, the sea was what stood guard over John in his prison on Patmos and separated him from the churches of Asia. Unquote. So again, I cited that just so you remember, the sea isn't sinful in and of itself, but it certainly was something that had to be overcome. And so when we look at these seven evils in the new creation that are going to be overcome, the sea should really be understood as the first of them. Again, not that it's evil in and of itself, but it's at variance with what the new creation is about. And then what we're going to see is there's going to be no more death. That's the second one, Revelation 21.4. There's going to be no more mourning. Now, it's not evil to mourn. Would you say someone who's mourning is doing something evil? No. But isn't mourning at variance with the new creation? If you and I are among the life-giving God in his presence, and he's given us all things in perfection, then mourning is completely out of place. And we see the same thing with weeping. There's going to be no more pain, and the curse will be gone, and then you see that there's going to be no more night. So do you see then in this list of seven, it is bracketed by what we may refer to as natural phenomena, in other words, the sea and the night. Why is the night something that has to be overcome? Well, because it represents darkness. How many? So you and I, because of GE and all the things that we have in modern technology, we just go flip a switch and we get a light bulb to come on. But that wasn't the way it was for thousands of generations, right, or hundreds of generations. People didn't have light. It was very difficult. They feared the night. It was something to be overcome. But again, when God is in our presence, he is going to be the light itself, and there's never going to be darkness again. So those are the seven evils. And again, I think it's telling when John structures this list that, again, it is bracketed by both the sea and the night, which are naturally occurring phenomena. Okay, 
Genesis 1-2, you see this at the beginning. The earth was formless and void, and there was darkness. That's going to be overcome. There was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was moving over the surface of the water. So notice in Genesis 1-2, you have darkness and you have the sea, and they're both overcome in the new creation. So the new creation is going to be superior. And again, just as Isaiah 45-18, God said he did not create his universe to be tohu, to be chaos. So we can infer from that that the new creation is going to be absolutely perfect. It is going to be without any blemish whatsoever. Okay, yes, Bob. It's interesting that under the new covenant and what we learn is that conversion is going from darkness to light. Amen. And that was told to Paul. And he says that at many places. Yes. And Jesus said that, actually, in John. Amen. So uh, spiritual darkness characterizes the fallen human race. Amen. And the only way to come into true light is through Christ. Amen. Who said that he is the light of the world. Wow. Yeah, he said, I am the light of the world. Wow. He who comes to me will no longer dwell in darkness. Amen. We'll have you, the light of light, yeah. That's beautiful, Bob. You know, isn't it interesting then when the, the light of all creation, the one who spoke in there was light, when he's in our presence, darkness would be at variance with that. It is something that overcomes. Think about even um, this idea of something either being symbolic or real. A lot of times we say, is it real or is it symbolic? Think about the waters that we saw flow from the temple in um, Ezekiel 47 that's going to happen in the millennial kingdom. They are symbolic, but they're also real. In other words, they're not mutually exclusive. These are going to be real waters that will flow, and they really will bring life to wherever they go, but they're also symbolic of what fact? That the life giver of all of creation is living in Jerusalem, namely the Messiah, God himself. And so, I'm sorry, uh, Luann. Well, no, I was just going to say, you know, when we talk about this and how, you know, if you really are thinking about it, it's hard to to see this all happen because we don't see it. You know what I mean? And so when somebody's like new to the faith or even not new, it, it, it's one of those moments of weakness, let's call it. But last week we talked about the importance of the Old Testament and what yeah. it can teach us. Yeah. And how it teaches us how God does not change. He made promises to the patriarchs yeah. and they didn't see them fulfilled. Hebrews talks about the hall of faith. Those people didn't get what was promised yes. in their lifetimes, but it didn't mean it didn't happen. And it also talks about how faith is hoping for what is not seen. And so sometimes it's just going back and trusting who is God, what did he promise, whether I feel like it's true or not. Right, right. Amen. Well said. Now, I love that, you know, you had mentioned something out of Romans 8, um, for who hopes for what he already sees. And hope there in that passage is synonymous with faith. What's interesting is when he says that we have faith in what we do not see, it doesn't imply that there's no evidence for what we believe. We have plenty of evidence. It's just the fact that we don't empirically see it. It's not on the scene of history. But I want you to think about the fact that as we're looking at all of these promises, isn't it beautiful that the overcoming of evil is so grand that I would never come up with this. If I were to make this up, I wouldn't be so boastful to say, well, you know, all these things, it's going to be so beautiful. There's going to be this new city that's going to be 1,500 miles cubed. There's not going to be death, mourning, weeping, pain, the curse. What did the um, Buddhists come up with? 
the Buddhists in their great imagination came up with the idea that you'll maybe cease to exist, that you'll reach nirvana where you'll no longer suffer because you'll become one with, and you'll just, and you just, you just zip out. There's nothing left of you. Wow, that sounds great. And so my point is, it's easy to come up with something like that, but it's truly boastful and amazing when you see what God does. And to be honest with you, what you and I are reading about is the answer to the idea of why did God allow evil? Because what he's going to do with it is he's going to use it redemptively, where you and I will say, do you remember when? Do you remember how bad it was? Do you remember the mosquitoes? Do you remember the colds? Do you remember the flu? Do you remember the dying of the loved ones? No more. God overcomes it, and he uses it, that great contrast, for the sake of his glory. Think about how would you know how sweet it is to have a day off unless you worked hard? You know, for those who never have to work, a day off means nothing. I told my son that. I said, work hard in school. It makes your weekends all the sweeter. And he understands that. That's the answer ultimately for evil. God will overcome it, and he will use it for our betterment. That's the great promise that we see in Romans 8, 28, that he does cause all things, even the evils in this world, he causes all things to work for the good for those who love him and called according to his purpose. And we see that being fulfilled here in the new creation. So with that, I'm sorry, we're out of time, but we'll continue this next week. Bob has uh, blessed me with, he's going to do another sermon next week because I have some family obligations. It's a little bit more work to do the sermon. So he's going to be doing three in a row, which I'm excited about. We're going to be hearing Ephesians 2, 8 through 9, and then verse 10 next week. Uh, so very important verses I'm excited about. So thank you for doing that, Bob. So we'll continue this though and talking about the new Jerusalem uh, next week. Let's bow our heads in prayer. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you've given us these magnificent promises of the new creation to look forward to. And I do pray that you would use these things to give stamina to us as your people, that my dear brothers and sisters would look at these great promises and persevere. We pray that you would do this in Jesus' power. In your name we pray. Amen.